Welcome to The Climate Conversation. I'm Dan Brissett, EESI's Executive Director, and joining me as always is my co-host, Emma Johnson. Hi, Emma. Hi, Dan. I'm really looking forward to this episode. It's on a place I don't know that much about, but really excited to learn more and to dive deeper. We're journeying to the Great Lakes today. And I've heard they're pretty great. Uh, In fact, the Great Lakes is the largest freshwater ecosystem in the world, provide over 40 million people with water. Um, The Great Lakes region supports a $7 billion fishing industry, plus robust economies around tourism, recreation, and energy production. There are about 20 tribal nations with land within the Great Lakes Basin, and even more with treaty-protected rights, supporting subsistence economies and the continuation of indigenous lifeways. The region is also very ecologically diverse, with ecosystems ranging from wetlands to dunes to the lakes themselves, which provide habitat for over 3,500 species of plants and animals. Because the region is so large and so diverse, it's not possible to look at it as a single entity. But in different locations and ecosystems, there are a number of environmental threats ranging from pollution to habitat loss to climate change and many, many others. So in this episode, we're going to focus on some of the climate resilience efforts that are going on in the Great Lakes and the partnerships and programs that are working to protect the ways of life and ecosystems in this critical region. The episode of the podcast today pairs very nicely with an article series we started publishing uh, in October on federal resilience programs. These articles highlight federal government initiatives that support climate adaptation and resilience work across a variety of regions and environments. And a few of these articles focus on the Great Lakes. Before the article series, in October 2020, so a little bit more than a year ago, we also released our Resilient Future for Coastal Communities report, which was the culmination of a multi-part briefing series around coastal resilience. The report was released on October 26, uh, 2020, and I encur- or 2020, and I encourage everyone who's listening to go check it out because it's amazing, um, and it organizes findings and recommendations uh, in a way that is super accessible to policymakers. But also the briefing that we did on the Great Lakes uh, from February 2020 Um, was excellent. We had Beth Gibbons, who's the executive director of the American Society for Adaptation Professionals, Scudder Mackey with uh, Ohio Department of Natural Resources, Rob Kroll with Glyphwick, and we'll talk a little bit about Glyphwick coming up, and Brody Staple, who's a dairy owner, uh, Double Dutch Dairy, um, and he talked a lot about what the agriculture community is doing. So this is a really interesting topic, and it's one that I'm very excited to dig back into um, after a little while to find out how things are going. Yeah, and one of the programs that uh, is highlighted in the Federal Resilience article series is called the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, or GLRI for short, which is an interagency collaboration to protect and restore the Great Lakes. GLRI works by distributing grants to local federal agency partners and other groups to fund projects. Since 2010, GLRI has provided funding to 16 federal organizations to strategically target the biggest threats to the Great Lakes and work towards long-term goals, like making sure the lakes are a safe source of drinking water, and that no new invasive species establish permanent populations in the area. Here's how the program works. Congress appropriates GLRI funding to the administering agency, the Environmental Protection Agency. The money is then distributed to the federal partners, which fund agency-specific projects and other projects run by local, state, and tribal governments, as well as nonprofits and universities. 
Let's learn more from Chris Korleski, director of the EPA's Great Lakes National Program Office about GLRI's mission and the projects that they fund. 2010 was really the first year that the GLRI kicked off in earnest, because that's the first year that Congress um, started to actually appropriate funding, federal funding, to implement the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, or as we call it, the, the GLRI. Since 2010, Congress has, I think, generously funded the program roughly in the neighborhood of $300 million a year. You know, I start off by talking about money, because to do the work that we're doing through the GLRI with all our partners, it is expensive work, it's difficult and complex work, and it takes money to get it done. But boy, has the GLRI made a difference in terms of what we're actually accomplishing across the Great Lakes um, with our many, many partners. Under the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, so that's an agreement that the United States has with Canada to work jointly on, again, restoring and remediating the Great Lakes. Well, going back to the mid-1980s, um, Canada and the U.S. identified 43 what they call areas of concern, or AOCs. These were highly degraded um, areas in both Canada and the U.S., 31 on the U.S. side, 12 on the Canadian side, highly degraded areas that the governments um, and the International Joint Commission believed, boy, we really need to clean these up. Uh, a lot of them was contaminated sediment, uh, which had been there for decades, um, even going back to the turn of the century, and any number of other environmental problems. To put this in perspective, the, the money issue, between 1985, 1987, when these areas were identified, and 2010, only one AOC on the U.S. side was cleaned up enough to be taken off the list. Not a very impressive track record. One AOC in over 25 years. Since 2010, when Congress has started providing significant funding for the GLRI, we've now delisted six of these AOCs on the U.S. side, and we finished the work at about eight or nine more of them, um, meaning the work's been done, but they haven't healed up to the point that we're ready to delist them. You know, they have to show that they're meeting certain environmental criteria. So I think that's just a pretty good example of why that money, that congressional funding has been so important. And it's just allowed us to do so much work that otherwise wouldn't be getting done. When we think about the GLRI, certainly when I think about the GLRI, I tend to think about cleaning up areas of concern uh, and trying to deal with that contaminated sediment and damaged habitat. I'm dealing with invasive species, including invasive carp, which we really are trying to keep out um, of the Great Lakes. Nutrients, a significant problem in a number of places across the Great Lakes. Uh, excessive nutrients lead to algal blooms and even toxins that can be generated by those blooms. It can be a problem for public health. Restoring habitat is a big part of what we do, including things like coastal wetlands and beaches and special habitat for endangered species and that sort of thing. Since the GLRI started in 2010, we have funded several thousand projects. There are hundreds of projects where work is underway and or where work is in the pipeline. The climate adaptation and resilience aspects of these projects is so important because, as we mentioned in the briefing, the Great Lakes face a lot of environmental threats. 
about 50% of wetlands and 60% of forests in the Great Lakes Basin have been lost. And additionally, impacts of climate change threatening existing ecosystems and indigenous cultures. That's why GLRI's work is critical because it provides funds to organizations and governments working to protect the ecosystems around them. So far, they've helped bring about a lot of positive change. The initiative has funded over 6,000 projects, totaling $3.48 billion and resulting in the protection of over 440,000 acres of habitat. And a 2018 University of Michigan study found that GLRI created or supported an average of 5,180 jobs per year. Let's bring back Chris for a minute to talk more about the GLRI's climate adaptation and resilience work and dig a little deeper into the results of their funded projects. We're seeing much larger amounts of precipitation over shorter periods of time. We're seeing uh, great increases in storm intensity. Climate change is having a huge impact on the extremes of the weather uh, that we're going to be experiencing in the Great Lakes. So one of the biggest things that that means for us is when we fund a project and when the people we work with are designing projects to implement, we want to make sure that they are taking into account these new weather extremes and you know, all the changes that climate change is happening. You know, if we're going to build a project that has, for example, retaining walls or there are structures, um, concrete structures or even structures made out of natural materials, you know, barriers made out of gravel or riprap or, or whatever it might be, you have to make sure that you're designing for today's wave heights or what we envision the new higher wave heights would be. You have to envision, well, how far inland will the water go now compared to what it might have done 20 years ago? So you really want to make sure because this is taxpayer money um, and we want to be good stewards of that money, you want to make sure if, you, if you're going to pay for a project that's built somewhere out there, you want it to last. And if you're not paying attention to the changes in weather caused by climate change, you know, whether it's increased storms, flooding, big blowouts, then a lot of the projects you put in may not last very long. And that's something we want to avoid. When we do a project, we want to do it right. We want to make sure it's resilient. Um, we want to make sure it's going to stand the test of time. And uh, so that's that's probably one of the biggest places where in the GLRI, climate has a, a big impact on what we do. The work that we're doing in areas of concern, it's not just having significant positive environmental impacts. Again, the sediment could be cleaner. The benthos, the ecological system at the very bottom of the lake, um, that's being restored uh, so that we've got healthy species and we're help bringing back a healthier food chain. Um, habitat that we're doing where, where we're restoring, we're taking an area that you know, may look like an old degraded industrial area and we're turning it into something that looks much more park-like or to put it plainly, it looks like a place where people want to go. AOCs that we've worked on were places, many of them were places that people didn't want to go. They were dirty, they were contaminated, they were aesthetically unpleasant. What we're noticing is we're not just seeing a restoration of the environment, but after you clean up that environment, you're turning that area into a place where people actually want to go. So people want to go and fish. They actually want to bring their families there. They want to 
who knows, open a brew pub, uh, open a bait shop, open a, and what that's done is it's actually brought economic benefits to these areas. Maybe I overuse this, but my motto is if you clean it, they will come. If you take a degraded area like an AOC and you turn it into a place, again, that's attractive to people, you're bringing in people who will take advantage of that cleaned up environment. And frankly, I think that's one of the things that Congress is, is so excited about when they see not just the environmental restoration, but the community restoration that occurs in a lot of the places where we're doing this. So right now, under the under the uh, Biden-Harris administration, there are a couple of um, areas of focus that we're being asked to, to really think about as we implement the GLRI. One is the issue of environmental justice. Biden-Harris administration and, you know, Michael Reagan's EPA doing a much better job of implementing environmental justice as a priority. And in short, I think that means starting to pay attention to communities that historically haven't had much attention paid to them, and or even worse, they sort of got the short end of the stick in terms of the uh, externalization of the environmental costs. So a community would be viewed as a place, well, you know what, we can just dump our stuff there. And I think what the administration is trying to do is say is we have to work with those communities that historically have not been given a fair shake um, and were not viewed through an appropriate environmental lens. And that's something that's very important to us. And we think a lot of the work that we're doing in AOCs will be of considerable benefit to um, what we describe as environmental justice communities. Climate is of significant interest to, to this administration. And there, I'll go back to where I started, which is our biggest focus is First, making sure our, our projects are resilient. But for example, we're also working with the Army Corps to try um, to develop a better understanding of what kind of ranges in weather we're going to see because of climate change. A good example is based on existing, historically existing data, we might assume that, well, water might go this far inland or you might have wave heights of this level. What working with the core on is, let's do a better job of estimating what it is we're likely to see in the future because of climate change, so that we truly are designing to an appropriate scale. And we're not basing design on old, what is now old, out of date data, if you will. We need to take into account these, these new climate patterns, but we need to better understand what those are. GLRI works because it's a partnership. It works because it's a very close partnership between federal agencies, states, tribes, local communities, the academic community, a lot of people, you know, the general public. It's their, their interest in and their belief in the value of the GLRI that makes a lot of people work very hard on these projects. And I think that's why it's been a success. It was great to hear how GLRI projects connect to climate adaptation and resilience work and how they're looking to grow in the future. I'm ready to dive into some of the projects to hear about some of this work in action. Me too, Emma, absolutely. And I'm excited to learn more about this today with our guest, Jen Vanatter, the Great Lakes Program Coordinator for the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, or GLIFWIC. Formed in 1984, Glyphwick is an intertribal agency that exercises delegated authority for the co-management of ceded territories located in the upper third of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. 
This authority is delegated from 11 Ojibwe tribes that have treaty-reserved hunting, fishing, and gathering rights within those ceded territories. Glyph Lake provides natural resource management ex expertise, conservation enforcement, legal and policy analysis, and public information services. They currently have GLRI-funded ongoing projects on issues ranging from managing invasive species to conducting water quality tests. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jen. Happy to be here. Can you start by giving us some more background on Glyphwick and the issues that it focuses on? Broadly speaking, Glyphwick was created by its member tribes to support their treaty reserved rights to hunt, fish, and gather on what we call the ceded territories that take up the upper portions of um, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, like you just said. Um, these are the areas that the Ojibwe tribe ceded to the federal government in various federal treaties. And these treaties included the explicit reservation to the right, for the right to continue their subsistence lifeways in those areas. Um, and these rights have been recognized by a series of federal courts, including the United States Supreme Court. Glyphwick's primary role is to make sure that these federal court orders are implemented, but we understand that the rights at the base of those court orders are meaningless unless the resources continue to be healthy and sustainable. So we support the implementation of these court orders partly by working on the health and sustainability of the ecosystems within those seated territories. And this plays out in working on various water quality issues, fish contaminant issues, aquatic and terrestrial invasive species, and doing scientific studies on the predicted impacts of climate change and developing uh, management plans um, based on those scientific studies. Thanks, Jen. Glyphwick is working on a lot of projects funded by GLRI. Can you tell us about one of those programs? Well, the GLRI has really enhanced Glyphwick's ability to not only work on immediately emergent issues, such as uh, developing culturally appropriate fish consumption advisories and maps based on mercury loadings in culturally important fish, but also in to be able to focus on developing long-term research questions and issue spotting to develop responsive management plans and strategies for issues that are likely to come. For example, Glyphwick operates a long-term mercury program funded by the GLRI, which allows for the testing of culturally important fish. Historically, that has been walleye. We've recently expanded to muskie. Annually, we harvest these fish from inland lakes in the Great Lakes Basin and test them for mercury loadings. And this allows us to update annually fish consumption, culturally specific fish consumption advisories and develop maps that illustrate those advisories. And it's important to do this because those who practice subsistence fishing or Ojibwe cultural practices tend to eat significantly more fish than those populations typical fish consumption advisories were developed for. At the same time, GLRI funding was used to develop a diet study for whitefish and lake trout within Lake Superior. Those are two more culturally important species and species that are important to economically to members of Glyphwick member tribes. And in this study, the study was developed to find out what those fish are eating on a seasonal basis and then to track any changes that occur. Um, and this could have implications for in planning for climate change. For example, what one of the things they found so far is that white fish eat a heavy diet in dipariah, which is a species that has been disappearing from the lower lakes as they've been invaded by quagga and zebra mussels. 
Um, Lake Superior is one of the fastest warming of the Great Lakes. And so as it warms, and if we see an increase in these muscles in the lake, we're likely to see a decrease in the dipria. So we need to plan for that possibility in the future. Um, and Glyphic's ability to pursue these types of studies and projects that focus on culturally important species or issues that may disproportionately affect the members of Glyphic tribes is supported by the recent development of the distinct tribal program within the GLRI. Um, we call it the DTP, and this allows the EPA to provide a certain amount of funding, GLRI funding to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which then provides that funding to eligible tribes and intertribal agencies to pursue projects that are a priority to them as long as they meet the guidelines of the GLRI action plan. Can you tell us a little bit more about the district tribal program? Does it, the start of this program, help open more doors for Glyphlix work and, you know, more opportunities for tribes to be involved with climate and adaptation projects around the Great Lakes region? Yeah, the real benefit of the DTP is that it allows tribes to develop holistic Great Lakes programs that pursue the priorities of their own communities, provided they meet the requirements of the um, GLRI overall. As a federal program, the GLRI generally operates through narrow requests for proposals or RFPs that are already fairly narrowly tailored in what they are looking for from the applicants. And what we found in the early years of the GLRI is that tribes were having to piece together disjointed projects in response to those RFP, RFPs and sometimes had to fight pretty hard to get support for projects that were immensely beneficial to the health of regional areas within the Great Lakes, but maybe weren't a priority outside of that tribe or a partnership of tribes. And one example of that has to do with protection. Um, one of the hardest sides of GLRI to get funded or to get support behind is the idea of protection activities. And that is something that is immensely important to management strategies and worldviews of Glyphic member tribes, but also to many of the communities around Lake Superior in general. And while the GLRI does encompass protection as well as restoration, the lack of tra tracking metrics for protection activities makes it hard for those who want to pursue those activities to get federal funding for them. It's hard to hand over a large chunk of money if you can't directly track the results. And it's much easier to track those shovel-ready restoration projects that are generally the focus. But in the meantime, Lake Superior risks deteriorating as resources are spent in the lower Great Lakes to restore them. And the DTP has allowed tribes and Glyphwick to look into the future and figure out what scenarios might be and issues that we may be facing as the lake continues to warm and to work on management and adaptation plans now in an attempt to try to mitigate the effects before they get here and adapt for when they do. Thanks, Jen. We featured some of the work of Glyphwick in the past. Colleague Rob Kroll was a panelist on a briefing of ours back in early 2020 to talk about coastal resilience in the Great Lakes. And he was a fantastic panelist, a real gold star panelist, and did a great job. And so we're really happy to welcome another person from the Glyphwick family uh, into EESI's Congressional Education Programming. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what Glyphwick's been doing lately in support of adaptation and resilience, climate adaptation and resilience for Indigenous communities around the Great Lakes. Well, all of, all of Glyphwick's projects are guided by by the tribes that we serve. And 
that includes tribal elders, harvesters, and indigenous knowledge holders, and reflect the priorities that they set for us. And one of their top priorities is to manage the resources so that they are healthy and sustainable for seven generations into the future. Um, all the work we are doing with GLRI is aimed at keeping the resources at the base of our tribe's treaty rights healthy and sustainable in the face of what is to come with a changing climate. Looking into the future in your work with the tribes and other priorities that Clifford has, what climate resilience projects do you see coming into the future that you hope to be working on? For the last several years, we've been working on a vulnerability assessment for, for culturally important species um, where both Western science and traditional ecological knowledge was used to determine which of those resources are most likely to be vulnerable to climate change. And our next step, our, one of our top priorities in the future is to run those species through climate adaptation planning to help them adapt to what is likely to come and to keep the ecosystem as whole and resilient as possible for the future. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was great to have you on. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Jen. This is a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, Emma, this was a really interesting look at some of the really cool adaptation and resilience work being done in the Great Lakes Basin. The GLRI is a really interesting initiative. Glyphwick is a fantastic collaboration doing so much great work. It's been a really cool um, opportunity to go back and sort of see how things are going since the last time we really covered Glyphwick in a lot of detail, which was during that February 2020 Coastal Resilience Briefing. You and I were talking a little offline. The Great Lakes are this incredibly diverse ecosystem and they cover a huge amount of ground. They also represent a significant portion of the U.S.-Canadian border something we didn't get into a lot today, but something that we talked about in the briefing and how the United States and Canada work together to advance mutual goals um, in the area. It's a really interesting look at a really interesting part of the country. And I hope we'll have an opportunity later on, maybe in a future season, to come back and see how things are going around the Great Lakes. Yeah, Dan, I totally agree. I loved hearing more about Glyphwick's work and to get details about some of the projects that they're working really hard on. I especially enjoyed hearing about how they incorporate uh, scientific research, climate adaptation projects, and indigenous knowledge and education and uh, the livelihoods of the uh, indigenous peoples that live in the region all together into these projects to create something that is trying to move progress forward in as holistic and uh, inclusive way as possible. So that is really amazing to hear about. And it's also great to see one of our federal resilience programs that we featured in our article series sort of in action. And it's great to see how that work is actually happening. And we've covered so many different types of programs in the federal resilience series, not just on the Great Lakes, but we've also covered wetlands and coral reefs and lots of other programs around the country and all the amazing work that they're doing. So to read all of our federal resilience program articles, please visit eesi.org slash federal resilience programs. And if you liked the story and want to learn more about EESI's work related to resilience and adaptation, head to our website at eesi.org. Also, follow us on social media at EESI Online for all of our recent updates. 
The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. Go to eesi.org slash sign up to subscribe. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.